It's episode 118 of the Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Bean. Today on the program is Emily Tate. She's the Managing Director of Mind the Product, and we're going to discuss how the nature of product management has kept pace with the rapidly changing way we all work. Emily, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Ah, it's great. It's great. It's good to have another expat. Uh, to talk to. Uh, I've uh, I've lived over in London for know, five or six years now. I've kind of lost track, which I guess is part of the uh, part of the deal. But um, how long have you, you live in London? But you were originally where are you originally from? Originally from Texas, Dallas Fort Worth area. Cool. And um, I actually moved to London um, either at kind of the perfect time or worst time. Um, actually, worst time. I moved January twenty twenty. Oh so, my god. Um, <laughs> I basically had just enough time to get my flat set up before the world shut down. So, wow. and ironically, I moved to London um, because we thought that it would be good for me to be able to be with the team in person more. And so <laughs> that clearly has not been the case, but uh, but I'm still loving it. Uh, there are definitely worse places in the world to be locked down. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But wow, what a, what a shift. Like I came from San Francisco to London, which uh, didn't feel, I mean... There's obviously tons of cultural differences and things like that, but it was it didn't feel super dramatic to me. But I can't imagine Texas to Texas to London might be a bit a bit more of a delta. Yes, it is definitely quite different. Um, and I think actually that was a lot of what, you know, I born and raised in DFW, love Texas for many reasons, but there are things that I didn't love about it. Um, and in particular, just things like having to drive everywhere and having access to great public transportation in London, being in a very walkable mm. city. Um, of course, even just like the aesthetic of London is very, very different from Dallas, Fort Worth. Uh, so it's, it's been a fun switch. I tell people here, uh, in London that where I come from, where I grew up, like in the suburbs of Los Angeles, actually, uh, some of the buildings are over 50 years old. <laughs> people yes, from London it, are like uh, this, the pub we're sitting in, it's been in operation for 700 years. So, you know, that kind of, yeah, basically I think, uh, my, the house that I live in was built before my city was in Texas. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I saw in your bio that you are a, uh, a, a fan of cupcakes. And I wonder if you have a recommendation here in the, here in London where where we can get the best cupcakes. Yeah. So I will say the cupcakes here are very different. Uh, a lot of the the pastries in general, uh, mm. just kind of different flavors and tastes. Um, actually, my go-to is a chain in London of Lola's Cupcakes. So um, I think that they kind of, for me, strike the right balance of not too dense of a cake uh, and a nice buttercream. So. Oh, there you go. Great. Well, I'll make a plug for the Hummingbird Bakery. Uh, there's a couple locations, I but mostly on the East. Bakery yet. Yes, more in East London. It. So um, they're great. Uh, as well. So cool. All right. We got, uh, uh, let's see, expat Texas and cupcakes out of the way. Maybe we should talk about uh, work a little bit. Sounds good. <laughs> so you uh, you are, um, uh, it says here, managing director of Mind the Product. Uh, I am familiar with the events that Mind the Product does, but I know it does a lot more. And I can only imagine you've had to diversify in the last year. Uh, uh, with, with the inability to do public events, but why don't you give us uh, just a little background? I, I'll, I'll, I'll also sort of set that up saying we had Martin Erickson, uh, who is also uh, in leadership at Mind the Product on the podcast, oh, probably three or four years ago now, I think it was. But we talked a little bit about it then, but I'm sure so much has changed. So give me a little overview. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, so Mind the Product is a global community of product managers, uh, basically aiming to connect product managers to learn from each other and to share their experiences and basically help product managers grow and to further the craft of product management. Um, so we've been around for uh, over 10 years at this point. Mm. Um, started off as a meetup of a product tank meetup in London that uh, Martin started along with uh, some of our other co-founders. Uh, that's just aimed at connecting product managers because it can be kind of a lonely job. And especially, you know, 10 years ago, it wasn't as kind of popular of a role as it is now. And people didn't really know as much about it. Um, so basically it was intended just to kind of have some therapy sessions with other product managers. <laughs> um, and over time, what started as 25 people in a pub grew to a couple hundred people in London and then started moving out to other cities. And um, so I actually got involved with Product Tank, the, the free meetups, um, started the Dallas meetup in 2015 um, because we didn't have anything like it. All around DFW, there were meetups for every kind of tech you would want, every kind of user experience, specialty, but nothing for product. Um, so that's kind of the heart and soul is that community piece. Over time, it grew into a conference, which then grew into multiple cities. So we do uh, pre-COVID, we did London, San Francisco, and Singapore uh, as our flagship conferences and smaller regional events in Manchester and Hamburg. Um, and then we've added training um, and kind of online discussion. And we have a lot of content and articles and you know deep dive um deep dive content about product management. Um, and then in 2020, obviously, our business model completely shifted because yeah, we bet. were mostly about in-person events at that point. Um, so we had to kind of look at what our mission and what our vision was and how can we accomplish that in a way that doesn't involve in-person events. Um, so what we introduced in 2020 was membership. So a basically a subscription to year-long learning, um, kind of more deep dive content, self-paced training, um, remote events. So we do ask me anything sessions or panel sessions, uh, kind of bring in different speakers to help people continue to learn, um, and other just kind of community events within this membership community. So that's kind of where we are at this point. Uh, our kind of set of offerings are, uh, I would say at this point, mostly digital conferences, and we're kind of starting to dip our toe back into in-person conferences with a hybrid event in October, um, membership and training. Interesting. All right. So part of my job is around uh, supporting a community, and in, in my case of uh, founders of startups, and we had traditionally done a bunch of in-person events, got people together, brought in speakers and things like that. We also had to quickly like, well, we can't do that anymore. Uh, so what do we do? This, uh, like, as of now, here we are, 2021, October, kind of in, you know, end of the year and, and figuring out like, what does this hybrid, like potentially hybrid world look like? I'm super curious about that. Like I have maybe some uh, lack of imagination here around how do you take the best of both worlds and blend them? Or do you keep doing them, but do them separately? You know, and like, I just don't know. So I'm, I'm curious where your head is on all of that. Yeah, I think um, hybrid, both in the event space, as well as just in the working space is, right. is going to continue to evolve over the next several years. Um, I, um, even before COVID, I was kind of in the mindset of, I, I was not one of the people who was like, everything can be remote all the time. You never have to be in person with other people. Mm. Um, again, I moved across an ocean to be closer to people I was working with after working fully remotely for two years from Texas with a London-based team. Um, 
But I think what we're finding is that you can kind of blend those experiences. It's not necessarily saying, I also don't swing the pendulum the other way of like, you have to be completely co-located and, you know, never do remote work because that's just not realistic. And it's actually not the best way to do things. Um, Cause there are tasks that are more suited for hybrid than there are, than they are in person. And then that in-person connection is needed to build the relationships. Um, basically sometimes work through things faster than you can, or, or with a different, um, you know, part of your brain than you mm-hmm. do necessarily while looking at video cameras. Um, so I think it is a little bit of blending. And then it is also recognizing like where the real differences are and where they're not going to be blended. And I think as we've worked through this hybrid conference, um, it's been interesting because our first intention was we wanted it to be integrated. We didn't want it to feel like two separate events um, or like there was a premium experience being in person. And then the people who are online are missing out. Um, or there is, we didn't want it to feel like you're, you're just getting to peek into the room. Um, and so we started looking at where could we make those touch points? Where could we connect people? How can we make the in-person and the hybrid experience, um, feel cohesive. And so actually where we've landed with it is our first day of the event is fully remote. So regardless of whether or not you have an in-person ticket or a remote ticket, Day one is all remote. Um, and so, and we actually over COVID, um, I think got to a really good spot with our remote events where, um, you know, I will be honest, when we first did our first digital conference, I was not certain we were going to be able to recapture the magic right. of an MTPCon. And I, you know, I love MTPCon with all my heart. And so it was really sad thinking, oh, this is going to feel like another Zoom call. But they don't. If you do them right, if you kind of take care to work through the experience and um, you can make digital events feel, basically have the spark of the in-person events. Mm. So we're sticking with that on day one. And then on day two, um, it is like we are going to be back at the Barbican with live speakers on stage. Part of the audience will be in the room um, and it will be live streamed back to the digital platform for the people who can't attend in person. Um, and then on things like within the breaks, um, we're still having, you know, we, we're having roundtables on the digital platform that people can join if they want to from the in-person event, or they can connect with people in person because that's what they're there for. So right. um, I think, you know, we talked about, do we do things like set up a video station at the in-person to you know, have people talk to people on the digital side? Um, and I think as we talked to people who were interested in coming um, and kind of interviewed our users, like we like product <laughs> managers do, um, you know, we started realizing that people who are coming to the in-person event don't necessarily want to then go back into Zoom boxes while they're at the in-person event. And so we could try to kind of force fit some of that. But instead, we just decided, you know what, day one will be when we connect everyone. Um, Day two will be a little bit of two separate experiences, but centered around the same content and with touch points where people can interact online if they want to. That makes sense. That makes sense. One of the things that we noticed uh, or were inspired by, I should say, um, in our virtual events uh, to try to, like, as you say, capture that spark of what happens uh, was really informed by watching Twitch, for example, with video game streamers and how a video gets like somebody would play a video game and narrate what they're doing and interact with a live stream of chat all at the same time with opportunities for the for the people viewing to interact with the game and things like that. And it was you know absolutely fascinating. There's other examples 
of uh, communities forming around people who watch live sporting events, right? Uh, streaming in real time and then having commentary and uh, yeah. uh, very likely gambling, <laughs> all sorts of things. It's happening <laughs> at the same time, but it was all um, a very interesting. Like, oh, there are actually things that are different and potentially even more interactive than being in person. That's really compelling. And it's interesting to see that taken to what would be, you know, sort of a, a professional community and how, yeah. and how might we lever- leverage those interactions. It's really interesting as well, because um, we're, there are things that we never did at our in-person events before COVID that we started introducing in the digital events um, and are actually going to make a pass at doing them in person as well. So things like um, typically mind the product conferences were 2000 people in person. Right. Um, that is not an environment conducive for a Q&A at the end of a talk. Um, and we just got, you know, of course, we all know you go to a conference and Q&A time, you have the, this is not so much a question as it is a comment or the <laughs> long meandering question that's so specific and has nothing, no value for anyone else in the audience. Right. So we had just always kind of, our talks were one day, one track, no Q&A. You could meet up with, you know, ask the speakers questions afterwards and, you know, in breaks or at the after party or whatever it may be, but we never tried to do an audience Q&A. When we shifted to digital, um, we naturally realized that it, you could do that through Q&A platforms and um, kind of chat. And then the way that we did it in the online events is the speaker would do their talk. Um, and then Martin and I would curate the questions um, and so that basically there was a little bit right. of a flow to the Q&A of it um, and get some of those questions in that the audience wanted to ask, but didn't have the opportunity to and did it more interview style. Um, so for our in-person event, we are for the first time on the main stage going to be trying to do some Q&A and do it that kind of interview style uh, rather than what kind of, I think where our minds had thought in the past was pass the mic around the Barbican audience, which is just not feasible. Right, right, right. Uh, and thereby probably creating a safer space for a more diverse range of questions as well for, yeah. from people that would never grab that microphone now have the opportunity to participate, which I think is great. Definitely. Yeah, that's cool. All right, let's let's uh, let's take a little break uh, and we'll come right back with more. And this episode of Presentable is brought to you by privacy.com. All right, friends, I want to tell you a story. I almost got caught out just last week by a phishing attack. I got this text message saying that a package had been held in customs. Uh, it's trying to be delivered and I needed to pay duty on it. I get this all the time. I get lots of unexpected packages from the U.S. as part of my job. I don't even think twice about it. So I tapped the link. I started filling it filling in the very accurate looking form. Uh, and I was just about to get my credit card when it occurred to me, hey, wait, I should double check this. Hold on, slow down. I checked the URL. Sure enough, it was totally a scam. Like I dodged a bullet, but just barely. So you know what? Like Privacy.com makes a tool to help in situations like this where, where you might get caught out putting a credit card number into a form that you, didn't ex- that you were expecting something different. Now suddenly somebody's got your data, right? They make it easy to manage your financial life online while keeping your most important information secure by generating virtual credit card numbers. So privacy masks your bank information so you never have to worry about giving out to people you don't know online. This is incredibly important. Like this... I, the degree to which we do so much e-commerce, so much uh, shopping and and uh, putting our credit card numbers into so many different websites, use a different credit card number for everyone. It's, it's incredibly easy to do and really important. You can take back control of your payments, decide who can charge your card, 
how much, and how often. And you can close a card, get rid of the number at any time. Uh, you can make sure that you're never accidentally billed twice or upgraded to another service without your consent, all of those things. Uh, Privacy has partnered with the good folks at 1Password, a, a, an app that I use all the time and love. Uh, you can create, use, and save uh, cards from privacy.com directly within 1Password dashboard. All virtual cards created in 1Password will have the same security benefits as all your other privacy cards, and you can set the spend limits, create single-use, merchant lock cards, whatever you want. So head to privacy.com slash presentable, sign up for an account. If you're a new customer, you'll automatically get $5 in your account to spend on your first purchase, free money. So go to privacy.com slash presentable, sign up now. Our thanks to Privacy for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. Uh, all right. So, you know, the other question I have about uh, your conferences is the mix of speakers. Uh, in particular, they're, they're, disciplines, I guess, or crafts, right? Like uh, one of the things that it that caught my attention a few years ago uh, about Mind the Product was, hey, I know a bunch of these people and they're like designers and user experience uh, people and not just a bunch of product managers that are going to try to preach Taylorism to me. You know, <laughs> and so I, I, uh, I thought, well, that's really interesting because it opens up the conversation of where, where, where is it permeable between those disciplines, or is there any difference whatsoever, and and all of that. And I wonder, sort of, how philosophically you see uh, where we land in that conversation of like what is design and what is user experience and what is product management. Where do requirements come from, and all of that? Yeah. So. Product management is um, is we like to talk about it as it's a generalist world generalist role in a specialist world, um, and so you know when you're working in the product development world, you've got designers who are very specialized in the design craft and engineers who are very specialized in the engineering craft, and your marketing team is specialized in their marketing craft, sales team, um, and product is kind of the role that plays in all of those worlds in a, in different ways and mm -hmm. bridges the gap between different things. Um, and I, that's not to say that like we are more important than any of those, but it's also not to say that we're less important. Uh, and I think it can be a little difficult at times to kind of put, to articulate the value that product management provides. Um, but I think within a generalist role, you need to have exposure to other disciplines and understand where they're coming from and then how that can be used. Basically how you can take the, um, take the expertise of these other areas and apply it to your product practice to get to the better answers, to get to the best decisions. Um, so particularly product and design end up having a lot of overlap um, and especially within the practices that you do. So things like user interviews and, um, you know, user testing and hypothesis and evaluation and kind of the discovery process. Um, they are both, I would say, kind of core practices of both design and product. Um, now the thing that, yeah, you know, I, I think that we waste a lot of time when we get into the, like who owns the customer or like, which, <laughs> you know, is it who who's leading this design or product? Um, actually, all of the best times that I have had and the, the, the most effective research efforts and customer experience efforts I've had have been when I worked side by side, best friends forever with my design pair. And I've had a couple of different experiences with different designers where we realized that coming together and doing these activities together, we were taking slightly different lenses to the same activities. So when you're watching 
uh, you know, a, a um, usability test. Of course, the designer is looking at the interaction design and kind of how they're using the product and can they get through the different aspects. I'm looking at that too as a product manager, um, but I'm also kind of keying in on, okay, this, you know, the way that we have this built right here is definitely not working. Um, but if we change that, what does that do to the next three things that we were thinking about doing? How does that fit in strategically? Um, and so that then my designer and I can have a conversation that can, uh, fix the design or make the user experience as it, as we need it to be for the customer to have the best experience in that pass, I guess, and in that, in that feature, but also do it in a way that sets us up to achieve our longer term vision and our longer term strategy. So we don't box ourselves in. Um, so it's kind of like, it's, it's a, that's a really clumsy example, but basically kind of taking the same activity and looking at it through two different lenses that then come together to create the best experience. Mm, I really like that. You know, uh, for, for many years, I have always talked about macro and micro, you know, um, that like how, uh, and, and how difficult it can be to switch between the two. And so I have um, very often taken the role in the position of looking at the macro, at the big picture and all of that, and then had people that were very, very good at like, you know, at the click level, at the interaction, at a physics model for how things move onto the page, you know, that level of stuff, yeah. which um, can can completely make or break not just an interaction, but a whole product experience and even people's trust in a brand. And I think it's vitally important and something that I had very little ability to do. And, but, but that give and take that I think you're talking about, I think is, is absolutely crucial. That's interesting. That's a good point. Yeah. And I think it's really important as well that, um, we recognize that, we are not the micro, like we're, we're not the ones that are doing that micro work. Um, and so when I'm wanting to learn about how to do user research and I'm wanting to work with designers on user research, it's not because I want to do their job for them. Or when I like start to dig into the tech stack and what, you know, kind of what the options are and how our product is built. It's not because I want to tell the engineers how to do their job. I don't want to, they know way better what they should do, but the more that I can understand it and the more that I can um, basically have that, you know, have a base level of knowledge. Um, frankly, the, the less I will make their lives difficult by doing unintentional things that, uh, you know, creating, saying, let's make a feature that is going to be really, really hard to build when we could achieve the same outcome with something much simpler. If I had known that it was going to be, uh, you know, a difficult thing to do. Yeah, well, I like that too. Just in general, having a more of a Renaissance view of the world in a in a world that is like seems to be marching towards a hyper specialization. You know, like when I talk to engineers and like uh, just the the level of complexity of the systems that they have to maintain and operate leads people down a path of like I'm not just a front end engineer, but I'm a front end engineer that works with this tool chain, right, in these environments. And just like, oh my God, that can be very difficult to go from that micro out into any sort of macro. So having somebody say like, I got that, you know, that's really valuable. I'll tell you the other thing I've found incredibly valuable with amazing product managers that I've worked with is in larger organizations, they tend to be the experts at navigating the organization. And that is something uh, that I think a lot of people that are incredibly skilled in, in their craft can often dismiss as like, I don't want to mess with politics. 
which I think is, you know, uh, really under, underselling the value of that, again, broad lens of how an organization operates. Yeah. Stakeholder management is absolutely key to being a good product manager. Um, and I, you know, I, I hear that a lot as well of, you know, I've done different talks on stakeholder management and kind of how to navigate those, um, you know, those relationships, because as product managers, again, like I'm not developing anything. I'm not making wireframes. I'm not creating the designs. I'm not doing the selling at the end of the day. So I have to enroll all of those people and what we're trying to accomplish. Um, and you can't do that by trying to be the boss and by, you know, having that. And of course the constant thing is the CEO of the product and like that, that mentality that like, I'm the decision maker. Um, it's all about enrolling people and getting everyone aligned on what we're trying to achieve and then helping them achieve their goals as well. And I think when people kind of get into that mindset of like, oh, that feels like playing politics. It's just, you know, you're saying what people want to hear. You're having these, you know, different conversations. Um, the way I like to frame it is it's actually not playing politics. It's having empathy because when you're trying to like, quote unquote, play politics, it's because you're trying to understand what the goals are of the person you're talking to and understand why they're raising the objections that they are or why they're frustrated that this feature isn't higher on the roadmap or whatever it may be. Um, and it's not coming just because, well, sometimes it can just be because they're jerks, but most of the time it's coming because they have a different set of goals. They have a different outcome they're trying to achieve. And once you really understand that, then you can start to say, okay, now how can I bridge this gap between where I am and where they are and bring us together in a way to make us both successful in what the company is trying to achieve, not my individual goal. And that doesn't always mean that I'm going to win either. Like what sometimes it is, oh, now I really understand what you're trying to accomplish and why you're making this into such a big deal. And I'm realizing that I am making your life harder and I don't want to do that and, and unnecessarily making your life harder. And so I'm going to change my mind and I'm going to change my opinion and we're going to readjust things. Um, so I think that kind of that, when you can reframe the playing politics, which to me has a um, a winner and a loser into more of, I'm trying to have empathy for my stakeholders and understand their goals and their needs. It just puts you in a more collaborative place to move forward. Mm, that's great. It takes you out of the zero sum game, right? Like, yes. uh, like I'm going to get mine and you're going to have yours and all of that and turned it into much more of a collaborative conversation. Mm, that's great. I like that. Let me, let me run an idea past you that, that felt real in my own experience in my career uh, to date. And I wonder if it's still true, but I found having come to technology through design and, and then feeling generally unsatisfied with not being involved in this back then requirements gathering, right? Like I'm just being told what to paint. And so I want to get more involved in, in the, what we're going to make led me into user experience. Right. So that was, you know, the beginning of my career realizing, oh, there's a much bigger thing here. But then realizing in the mid part of my career that the path to leadership was on product side. Right. That that there were, if you look at all the companies, there's way more heads of product or chief product officers than there are uh, people in leadership positions in design at an equitable level. And right. And that. Um, now, admittedly, that was probably now 10 years ago, right? And perhaps there are more chief design officers in the world. Although to me, that still feels like 
more the domain of like luxury brands and you know stuff like Apple had one and maybe BMW has one, but a chief design officer at Google or you know, uh, I, I'm sure there is, but it's it doesn't feel the same. So I don't know. Uh, I kind of started to call myself like, no, I'm I'm a product person, right? All my experience is in design, but that's what I bring to bear to be the leader of product here at wherever I happen to be as um, that just like looked like the path to more opportunity. Yeah. I, I think that, I think some things are shifting in that way. Um, I would not say all things are shifting in that way. I do think that uh, actually for a long time, product was basically fighting that same battle to be uh, not kind of subjugated under the technology organization. Oh, totally. Um, <laughs> totally because agree. it's kind yeah. of like, I, and, I, and I, as you say that, it's funny because like the, there are fewer, you know, uh, chief design officers and there are chief product officers. And as product people, I think, oh, there are fewer chief product officer than chief technology officer. And yeah. when you start getting into companies and they like the VP of product reports into the CTO yeah, and totally. it doesn't have, totally. and so it, it is kind of, there's this constant yeah. thing of- And follow the budgets, seat? right? Yes. Yeah. Um, and it, it is an element where um, I think that there's work to be done all around on that. Um, and the more that we can kind of get organizations to realize that, you know, to kind of realize the vision of more empowered teams where it actually, because I think a bit of the leadership battle is if, you're, if your discipline has the top leader, you win the arguments, you know, when it comes down to the, <laughs> yeah. here's, you know, how we, how we do funding or which projects we fund or what, you know, it, whether we focus on the the technology and the maintenance platform, or if we're focused on new features and new solution sets or whatever it may be, um, kind of you, at the end of the day, if there was a battle between engineering and product, if you both reported into the chief technology officer, engineering would probably win. Got it. Was yeah. the general sense. I kind of think that that's, that's been, um, and as you say that, I have seen actually a lot of design organizations that end up reporting into product and then feeling misunderstood because of that and feeling like I, uh, you know, my craft gets, uh, doesn't get the respect it deserves, or, you know, if they, they respect me as long as I'm doing what product wants me to. And the second that I recommend something different now it's, it's, you know, I just get pushed aside. Um, and I, I think that that's, there's an element that's like that shouldn't happen anywhere, regardless of kind of what the reporting structure is. Um, but I do also think that there's a misconception with product that it is the place where you kind of get the get the leadership, get the ownership. Um, and I know that I've actually seen people try to move into product either from development or design um, because they have this sense of like, I'm tired of not getting to make the decisions and I want to be the person to make the decisions and slash, or this feeling of like, Oh, I could do the product manager's job better than they can. And, <laughs> um, and it, because again, it's a, it's a role that doesn't have a clear artifact and a clear thing that comes out at the end of the day that says, look at this thing that I built. You know, I, I, I built a thing and it exists. Um, your, your um, impact is much more ephemeral. And so people often then think, well, I didn't get to do the thing the way I wanted. So therefore I just want to be the product manager because then I can do everything the way that I wanted. And then they get in the product role and realize this is really hard. <laughs> it's kind <laughs> of enrolling people all around and you are you have way more to do than you could ever physically accomplish in any given product development organization. And making those trade-offs and constantly having to be the person to 
say no or tell someone not now or um, you know, have two really good things that need to happen and know you can only do one of them. Um, that is like a lot of times it's not very fun and it's kind of thankless. Um, and so, and I think, you know, that from, from a, a leadership perspective product also tends to kind of fall into a weird spot as you move into leadership. Um, because we've spent a long time in the center of our product career, doing informal leadership. So doing just kind of the, um, you know, leadership without authority and, uh, the influence leadership. And so you have that leadership perspective, but then you're also doing the tactical. And I see a lot of product managers really struggle when they actually move into the leadership leadership. And I say, I see some, I've been this person who has trouble of letting go of doing the tactical, um, because, we've been doing leadership in some way for a long time, but also pairing it with the, now let me get in there and make the roadmap and let me write the stories and let me work with the development team and get that, frankly, dopamine hit of a thing being built. And as you move into that leadership level, you kind of have to stop doing that. And you have to hand that over to other people and let other people shape the product and make those decisions that you've been making. And that can be really, really tough. <laughs> yeah. So, no, the, the leverage of trust is really difficult, you know, for a lot yeah. of people to get to for sure. Um, and I think the other side of it is while there is more of a leadership path within product, I, I think that there, there is some, uh, some credibility to that thought. Um, it also has kind of turned into it's the only way to continue to progress is to move into leadership and not oh, everyone right. wants to, not everyone wants to be a leader. Yep. Um, and actually there's a really healthy conversation that has started, I would say with like in force in the last year um, where, you know, last year, a couple of years of what is the senior individual contributor path for a product manager and how can we make that a, a um, an acceptable and a respected position to be in. Um, and I actually, I mean, I know several product managers who in the last and designers actually, who in the last few years, um, had been in leadership roles and in their next job, they decided to go back to an individual contributor and be a practitioner again. Um, because they realized like, I missed the building. I missed the, the, like seeing the thing happen. And so I think that, while it's good there are leadership opportunities, we also need to acknowledge that leadership's not for everyone and and that management aspect is not for everyone. And um, and it's okay if you just want to build and we yeah. should support that. Yeah, I saw great examples of that in my tenure at Adobe uh, where I worked with uh, product managers and program managers who had 20 years of experience doing that, um, did not uh, did not go towards a management career, but instead took on bigger and more complex challenges. You know, yeah. and when you have a 20,000 person company with who Lord knows how many projects and you have something that is highly strategic that cuts across a hundred teams, like, and somebody has to write the stories and like make every, get all the agreements and get everybody into the right direction across that many teams. It was, uh, it was a beautiful thing to watch that happen. Um, and, and I couldn't conceive of the, like the skill behind just what it took to, to accomplish things like that. Definitely. And I think, and you kind of see, uh, you know, in, in engineering, I always saw like the architect role in, in a similar realm where it's right. Exactly. As you get these these senior engineers who are very very skilled and brilliant, but don't necessarily want to be an engineering manager, they want to kind of be a bit more it's like marrying that strategic and hard challenge with the 
tactical doing. Um, and I think that like that architect role became that senior individual contributor role within engineering. And we're still kind of trying to figure out what that actually is on the product side. How do we create that career path? Yeah, for sure. For sure. All right. Well, let's take a last break here uh, and then we'll be right back. This episode is also brought to you by our friends at Pingdom from SolarWinds. Uh, today's internet users obviously expect a fast user experience, no matter how targeted your marketing content or how sleek your website is. They'll bounce if a page is loading too slowly. Uh, but with real user monitoring from Pingdom, you can discover how website performance affects your visitor's experience. So you can take action before your business is impacted. And it's as low as $10 a month. So uh, whether your visitors are all over the world or across browsers, devices, and platforms, Pingdom helps you identify the bottlenecks helps you troubleshoot performance, helps you make informed optimizations. Real user monitoring is an event-based solution, so it's built for scalability, and that means you can monitor millions of page views, not just sample data, and do it at an affordable price. Get live website performance visibility today with real user monitoring from Pingdom. Go to pingdom.com slash RelayFM. Right now, 30-day free trial, no credit card required. Then, if you're ready to buy, use the code PRESENTABLE at checkout. You get awesome 30% off your first invoice. So thanks, Pingdom from SolarWinds for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. And we have one more. Uh, thanks to our friends uh, at the IntraZone from Microsoft. This episode of Presentable is brought to you by them as well. Uh, you know, it's always great to find a new podcast to listen to. Um, there's so many out there. Uh, but if you want something uh, that's uh, both interesting and relevant to the work that you do, the IntraZone is a biweekly podcast with conversations and interviews on how Microsoft, SharePoint, OneDrive, and all their other tech can really work for you. Uh, you'll hear from these great experts that they bring into every episode, uh, people behind the scenes from Microsoft, but also people out in the field using this stuff. Uh, so you can see how SharePoint fits into your everyday work life. It's uh, so that you can easily share and manage content, knowledge, applications, all sorts of stuff. Each show covers a bunch of segments like news and announcements, focused topic every week, guest perspectives, FAQs, uh, and upcoming events, really everything. Uh, the topics for the show are super interesting. Uh, there's a bunch of previous episodes, uh, like how you migrate all your stuff to the cloud, uh, how to design your intranet, and you know all the APIs that they have, especially how those APIs help you with teamwork, help people to work together, things like that. Uh, I listened to a very interesting episode uh, recently talking about Microsoft Lists and how it's used in a legal context in a bunch of different organizations and, uh, and how they use it to make sure they keep compliance and stuff like that. Fascinating stuff. So go and listen to it now. Uh, just search for The IntraZone wherever you get your podcasts. That's I-N-T-R-A-Z-O-N-E. Or just click the link in the show notes. Uh, so go check it out. Thanks to The IntraZone by Microsoft SharePoint for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. All right. So here's the thing. I, it, it would at the beginning of our conversation, we were talking a bit about how your company had changed in the midst of the last two years of of lockdown and and whatnot. Um, I'm wondering how, or if there's any uh, generalizations about how uh, product management has changed. I wonder if. Like so many other bits of the whole creation of technology, it feels like we have accelerated in many ways, 
right? A lot faster if you think about remote uh, and uh, collaboration, for example. It feels like we did like five or 10 years of technological advancement in, in the first six months, right? And tried to like, oh my God, we're going to figure out a whole bunch of new stuff. And I just wonder uh, if that has... Um, had a similar, like from your perspective and what people are talking about, what the community is uh, wrestling with, uh, what accelerations we may have seen. Yeah. Um, for me, I think the biggest thing is because product is, uh, frankly, kind of ill-defined in a lot of ways or that, you know, we, we were, it, it looks different in different companies and different stages of companies. And, right. Um, and I think that that's actually a good thing because the the needs of the company should determine the shape of the product manager. Um, but what it kind of became over time was the the unicorn product manager that you know basically every company wanted someone who could think very strategically, very tactically, and do everything in between, and could do user research and lead the scrum ceremonies and do the roadmap and be able to craft a five year plan um, and. That is a lot to put on any one person, um, especially because a lot of times those people were then like a, you know, with three to five years experience. It's like, that's a big ask. Um, And so I think that some of the conversation that I am really enjoying is, is like, what does good look like? And I know that I've talked to product managers who they see, of course, like the, the Twitter influencers and the other thought leaders and the, the people who are kind of making uh making product managers feel like they have to be able to be experts and really really good at every task a product manager could possibly do um and i think that that's not a very healthy view of of how to manage yourself as a product manager um because when it comes to kind of the the different dimensions of product whether that's uh user research or delivery or kind of that you know that discovery and actually the way i put it a lot is I see a lot of product managers kind of fall into three different categories. You kind of see the the strategic product managers who are really good at like that big picture thinking and seeing how all the puzzle pieces fit together to make something great. Um, You see the really creative product managers who are able to, uh, you know, just come up with the, the wildest things you never would have thought of and are really great in that like greenfield blue sky type of world and then you have the the more execution focused product managers who are really good at um you know a lot of the optimizing and the making things happen and just kind of uh, not getting hung up on the you know big picture stuff like just being able to kind of keep things moving forward and i don't th- very very few product managers excel in all three of those um you might you probably lean towards one you might have pretty good skill set in the second, and then you might be weaker on a third. Um, and so within that, we we need to start to acknowledge that like that's an okay thing. And rather than feeling like, and typically what ends up happening is whichever you're weaker in is what you decide is the thing product managers should be good at. And use it as a reason to say like, see, I'm, I'm not very good because I can't do what that person does. And you start to, right. you know, try to emulate the person who has the thing that you don't, when what you don't realize is the people who are strong in that are probably trying to emulate the thing that you have. Um, and so I think the more, especially as I talk to kind of early and mid-career product managers, um, I, I just, I, I want people to understand what makes them special and what value they bring to their role. And then realize that your strengths are not going to be the fit for every company and every product. 
Um, you know, if you are a super creative and kind of really love the thinking of the next thing and thinking about where this could go and how it could be so different, you probably shouldn't go get on, you work on a very, very mature product in a large organization that doesn't have a lot of room for experimentation and trying new things. But there are people who are really, really great on the optimization and execution, like making sure that, um, you know, we're not reinventing the wheel over here, but we're not letting this product get stale either. And those people are incredible on those kinds of products. Um, and so it's kind of acknowledging where you sit and how that can fit into the stage of the company, the type of product, the stage of the product, and what the next big tasks are. Um, and then I think within that as well, you can be in a product that was a fit for you and was really, really great for you. And as it grows and as it changes and as the company scales or whatever, the environment changes, it may not be the right fit for you anymore. And you should go look for the next thing that will let you use your skills more appropriately. That is always such a difficult sort of self-realization, you know, or to, uh, really, and that's something I think I, I coach a lot of people earlier in their career around, which is, um, if you aren't feeling successful, it might just be the fit yeah. right? and not like your lack of skills or some failings that you're, or whatever, or, uh, it may literally be, you could be doing so much better somewhere else. Right. And that's, that's really challenging. No, this is my dream job. I imagined getting, you know, I should, yeah. And now's a super interesting time for that. You know, there is this notion of the, the great migration, right? Like, yes. Uh, everybody is reevaluating. Am I really happy? And like, do I want to go back to what we were doing before? And a lot of people are saying, no, you know, now's a good time. And there are openings everywhere. And there's, there, it's just, it's, it's a little bit wild right now, isn't it? It definitely is. Um, it is, it, it is a, a good time to be looking for a job and a really difficult time to be hiring because <laughs> uh, yeah. there, there's, there's a lot of competition out there for really great people. Um, so I think it, it is a good time to do some of that reflection and, and evaluation. Um, the other thing I, cause I know a lot of times people get into this mode where they don't know, is it time for me to go look for the next thing? Or like, should I stick this out? Should I do? And, um, you know, I encourage people to, to really think about, okay, what do you want to accomplish? Like what, what's the story you want to be able to tell coming out of the product role you're in now? Um, and what do you need to see happen in order to either make you want to stay? So, you know, I need to see the company adopting these practices, letting us try these things. Um, or what do you want to finish off and then say, okay, now it's time for me to kind of take that next step and move on. And, and that's a healthy thing to be thinking about. It's not disloyal. It's not, you know, you're, you're, yeah, no, not every leader will agree with this, but like we should be supporting our people to go find the next thing. And um, yes, that makes our lives harder in the short term because we have to find somebody new and find the right fit and all of that fun stuff. Um, but we should be cheering on our people when they recognize that they need to go take on a new challenge and they need to learn something different. That's great. Yep, absolutely. And the best place to get started is probably uh, at, a, at a conference, networking and expanding your contacts and things like that. Uh, it's coming yeah. up soon, right? What's the date of the conference? October 21st and 22nd. Uh, 20, the, the 21st, as I mentioned, is all online uh, from anywhere in the world. 22nd, we will be uh, live streaming the talks from the Barbican with special things for the online audience as well. 
Um, and I think it's going to be a really great time. We are so looking forward to getting back in person and, and seeing people. But even if you're in, for example, I don't know, Dallas, Fort Worth, you can still participate, which is, I think it's super interesting. So that's great. Cool. All right. We'll put links to all of that, uh, in the show notes for this episode. Uh, so you can figure out, uh, what's on the agenda and how to sign up and things like that. Uh, also, uh, Emily, more about you. Where can we, uh, where can we follow you. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty easy to find. I'm at the daily M the daily E M pretty much everywhere. So you can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram at the daily M. Awesome. Great. Well, uh, Emily, thanks so much for being on the show. Uh, what a wonderful conversation. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for having me. This was fun. And that's another episode of presentable. Hey, got any questions? You can email us at hello at presentable.fm or get in touch via Twitter by following Presentable FM. We hope you've really enjoyed the show. And if you do, could you take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes? It really helps and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey Dean and this was Presentable. Presentable.